Good morning, church family. If you want to grab your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a, there should be a black Bible underneath the chair that you're sitting in. I encourage you to open up that Bible and turn with me to Genesis 45. If you're looking at that black Bible in your chair, it should be found on page 38 and 39 of that text. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the larger numbers on those pages are the chapter divisions, so we're looking at chapter 45, and then the smaller numbers that follow are the verses that belong to that chapter, so you'll see there's 28 verses, Lord willing, that we're looking at this morning. Everyone there? Some of you are? Everyone there? All right. If you look back on any given day in this past week, this past month, this past year, any day, it's likely that we're going to go through a range of emotions, anger, fearfulness, happiness, sadness, discouragement, hope. We might go through a whole wave of experiences of emotions like that. And depending on our circumstances or our age or our gender or our personality that God has given us, we feel things differently. Some of you feel things deeply. Others of you, not so much. My friend Tori gave me a little fridge magnet with someone on the magnet saying, I have feelings too. Sometimes I get hungry. That might be your experience. But whether you feel deeply or not so deeply in your experience, emotions can be powerful. The emotions that you go through in a day may, may motivate you to take great risk, or those emotions may leave you paralyzed with inaction. But emotions are not something that we merely experience like we're some passive participant in what emotions are doing to us. No, emotions are actually a gauge that reveal what we value. They reflect what we think or even what we believe. Emotions result from an individual's evaluation or judgment of a certain situation or a, an event or an interaction with someone. So in that sense, our, our emotions are more gauges than they are guides. Emotions show what we value or believe about a situation or what we believe about ourselves or what we believe about God. But the problem is, is that ever since sin entered the world, Genesis 3, sin has also touched our emotions. And so in that sense, our emotions, though important, they can at times mislead us. That's why we're saying that they're gauges not guides. Like the gauge on your car's dashboard, emotions will often reveal what's going on underneath the hood of your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your assessment. And so we should not ignore emotions. But emotions, your emotions are not your boss. They are not your ruler. They are not your authority. If you're a Christian, then God is your authority. His word is your authority, telling us and our emotions and our desires, this is true and this is false. This is good and this is bad. 
God is our authority. His word is our authority. We've been walking with Joseph for a, a while now in the book of Genesis as we said this book together. We first met him in chapter 37. He's the younger brother of 12, and he, we, we, we first met him in chapter 37. He was wearing this coat, this, this gorgeous coat of many colors that was a symbol of his dad's favoritism of him. He favored Jacob, their dad, fathered Joseph. He, he favored Joseph above every other of the sons. And the other brothers didn't like that. It didn't feel good. And so out of annoyance and out of envy, Joseph's brothers said, enough with this punk. And they threw him into a pit, left him for dead. In the last minute, they changed their minds. They say, let's make a little profit off this. And they sell him to some, a caravan of Ishmaelites that are passing by. They sell him into slavery to make a little profit on their brother. 22 years had passed since chapter 37. And after 22 years of Joseph being separated from his family, the family, which was the people of God. <laughs> this is God's chosen family. This family was in shambles and in dysfunction. Convinced that Joseph was dead, Jacob was wrestling with despair, feelings of hopelessness. Having lied to their dad in order to cover up their sin, the brothers would stagger through these 22 years of life burdened with a backpack of shame and guilt lurking over their shoulders everywhere they went. And then there's Joseph, betrayed by his family, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and left to rot in a prison cell. Joseph would have no doubt had to battle against the emotions of anger and bitterness and hatred against his brothers for what they had done to him. After God raised Joseph out of prison and we've watched God promote Joseph out of a prison cell into the second in command of all of Egypt and then brought Joseph and his brothers face to face because of a famine that God ordained, Joseph was like, okay, Let's see if my brothers have changed. I knew what they were like 22 years ago. Let's see if they've changed. Let's see if they've really repented. And so we've seen him watch and test his brothers in chapters 42 and 43 and 44. And several weeks ago when we looked at chapter 44, we, we saw Judah offer up himself as a substitute let Benjamin, my youngest brother, go free. I'll take the blame. Put me in, in, in prison in his stead. And so when Judah offers his life to rescue his brother in chapter 44, it was finally clear to Joseph his brothers had changed. Their repentance was real. Their repentance was real, but listen, the family's still in shambles. The gauges on their hearts are flashing. Danger! Bitterness for Joseph. Shame for his brothers. Hopelessness for Jacob. Sin had left this family in shambles. So how could this family, God's family, be made whole Again, 
Genesis 45 so shows us the beautiful pathway of God's grace. If you're taking notes, point number one is this. God's providence frees us to forgive. God's providence frees us to forgive. This is verses one through eight of our text. So look with me at God's word, starting in verse one. Moses writes, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This, you see these emotional terms of weeping and crying and, and dismay and distress in the text. So this is a very emotional reunion between Joseph and his brothers. And, and, and there's no surprise with this. We've been walking through chapter after chapter of, of his identity being hidden from his brothers. And it, 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 reached the boiling, it reaches the boiling point until he kind of discloses who he is. He discloses who he is, I'm your brother, and he, he weeps so loudly, we're told, that the Egyptians heard it. We can kind of imagine the Egyptians with their ear next to the door, like curious what's happening. Joseph's brothers had wronged him, betrayed him, sold him into slavery, left him for dead. And now Joseph is the man in charge. He's the second command of Egypt. He is therefore in a position to get revenge. And we wouldn't blame him. He'd been wronged. And so he's in a, when he sees his brothers face to face, he's finally in a position and he has the right to throw his punk brothers into jail or at least to smack them around a little bit. But he doesn't. His emotional response was not an emotional response of bitterness or resentfulness or a hate-filled response. No, the emotion we see is that of a, a merciful response. Mercy, you'll remember, is when we don't get what we deserve. He shows his brothers mercy. He forgives them. But how? How is this possible? How, after losing 20 years, perhaps 20 of the best years of his life, to their envy-driven, unjust betrayal, how could he forgive them? Well, because of God's providence. Look again at verse 5. 
And now do not be distressed or angry, Joseph says, with yourselves because you sold me here. How? How's he going to forgive them? For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me. He recognizes God's providence. Now, what's, what do we mean by providence? Well, we've seen God's providence before in Genesis. You'll remember God's sovereignty is his rule and power over all things. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It's, it's one of the job descriptions of God. If he decides to do something, he does it, and no one can stop him. That's part of being God. That's God's sovereignty. His providence is is a more specific category of his sovereignty. God's providence is God's sovereignty for our good. God's providence is his sovereignty, his control of all things, for our good. So God's providence shows that the aim of God's rule is not just meandering into nothingness. The aim of his rule is wise and it is good. And it's for our good. Now, if we doubt that that's what Moses is saying in this section of Genesis, Moses drives it home by having Joseph repeat it three times. In verse 5, in verse 7, and in verse 8, he's going to drive home the point that it was God who sent him to Egypt. Look at verse 5. You sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. Is that really what he's saying? Verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve life. For God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse eight, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now we're like, hold on, no. We, we read chapter 37. We know it was they who sold them into sla- Joseph into slavery. It was they who sent him to Egypt. And Joseph says, yeah, but God sent me. (laughs) It's the interplay between God's sovereignty, God's providence, and our responsibility. These brothers, they made the choice to betray their brother. They sinned, and they were responsible for the evil that they had done. But Joseph is seeing and explaining theologically that the brothers' sin that they were responsible for was not ultimately in the driver's seat of history. God was. God was in the driver's seat. God is in control, even, listen, even over his brothers' sinful choices. God gave his word to Joseph through a dream in Genesis 37. He told Joseph in this dream, you will one day rule over your brothers and they will bow down to you. He tells his brothers, his brothers get angry, they're annoyed by this idea of his dream and so his brothers throw the dreamer into the pit boasting, okay, now we'll see what comes of this dreamer's dreams. They thought they were putting an end to the folly of Joseph's dreams. In the pit, sold him a slaver, we're done. End of the dreams, right? Wrong. They meant to kill Joseph and his dreams. God meant to save the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people by getting Joseph to Egypt. Okay, so which is it? 
God's sovereignty, God's providence, or man's responsibility? Which is it, church? And the answer is, yes, it's both. The Bible's answer is, it's not either or. The Bible's answer is, yes, it's both. God is sovereign over all things, and we have real responsible choices that we make that we're held accountable for. Now, both of those are true, and if you ask me how they fit together, I don't know, right? But both are true because that's what the Bible says. And we see both of those truths in chapter 45. But Joseph is highlighting something about this interplay between sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. God's will is what sits in the driver's seat of history. God's will, his rule, his providence is the decisive factor such that Joseph is able to say in verse eight, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God's in the driver's seat. God, and and seeing this, seeing God's providence is what set Joseph free to forgive his brothers. Now listen, if, if you're hurt, if you've been hurt by someone and it really stings and it's kind of made a mess of your life, this idea of seeing God's sovereignty enabling us to forgive, it may, it may sound like it's making forgiveness easy and trite. You know, just remember God's up to something good when people sin against you and you'll be able to put a smile on your face and forgive people like Joseph. And I understand how you might feel that way, but I wanna, I wanna highlight something. God's providence actually does not minimize the injustice done against you. God's providence does not minimize your pain and treat it as trivial. I would argue that God's providence actually does the opposite. Remembering God's providence actually acknowledges that the burden of vengeance is actually too heavy for any human being, any individual to carry on their own. We're not meant to carry the the weight of vengeance. Only God is able to do that and not break. If we try to say, well, I, I have to make sure that vengeance is carried out. I was treated unjustly. I have to make sure I'm, in, I'm the one in charge of doing this, making sure that justice is met. I need to make sure that, 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 that vengeance is, is, is paid. Then we will eventually break under the weight of vengeance in bitterness and in hatred and in anger. And I get it. The, the instinct within us when we've been wronged is to carry that, that burden because we want to make sure that justice is met. But the Bible says to the Christian, you don't have to carry the burden of vengeance, not because God is indifferent to injustice, but because God cares about injustice more than you do. And the proof of that is the cross. God cares about injustice. He sees the wrong that was done to you and he cares deeply for you. And so listen to how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans 12, verses 19 to 21, applies this. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the, contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The reason that we're able to do that is because God is a God who cares deeply about injustice who cares deeply about justice, even as we heard in Psalm 99 last week. So friends, if you've been wronged by a friend or a family member, or coworker or neighbor or anyone, and that wrong hurts and stings, you may be stuck this morning in anger, stuck in bitterness, and struggling to forgive. That makes sense. But the good news of this text is that God's providence sets us free from bitterness, sets us free from hatred, sets us free from thinking that we need to get vengeance on our own, and it sets us free to forgive. But again, it's not enough just to know in our minds the idea that God's providence sets us free to forgive. You can, you can check that box, write the answer down in your, in, your, in your questionnaire. It's not enough just to know that you, you and I, if this is gonna actually have that effect of freeing us, we must actually trust, not just know, we must trust God's providence. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And I think this is where Joseph is helpful for us because whether it was nursing the pain of being betrayed by his brothers, whether it was enduring slavery, whether it was sitting on a prison floor wondering, where is God in all of this? Joseph's hope in those 22 years of waiting, Joseph's hope was not based on a play-by-play plan of what's next that God had revealed to him. He didn't have the play-by-play. He didn't know what was gonna happen next. He was in the dark. Joseph's hope was not based on knowing what was next. Joseph's hope was rooted in knowing who God is. He had this hope. He was able to forgive because he knew that his God, and we've seen this all throughout the text in Genesis 35, 11, Genesis 37, verse 1, his God is God Almighty, El Shaddai. The God who is in control, not just of some things, but of everything, including the sinful choices of his brothers who put him in his plight. God is in control, church. And his providence reminds us that his control is for our good. That's why we trust him. The Heilberg Catechism defines providence this way. I commend this definition to you. It says, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Oh, I love that last, that last part. Don't miss that. All things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He rules and reigns 
as a loving father who is committed to the good of his children. So what does trusting God's providence look like here? It's not just saying it. Trusting God's providence here means leaving vengeance to God. Trusting God's providence here means forgiving the wrongdoer and letting go of the bitterness and the resentment and leaving vengeance to God. God's providence sets sets us free to forgive. Let's keep walking down this beautiful pathway of God's grace in Genesis 45, though. Point number two, God's forgiveness leads us to peace. God's forgiveness leads us to peace. This is verses nine through 15 of the text. So look with me again, Genesis 45, verse nine. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt, of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Been a long time since these brothers talked, knowing who they were, right? For over 20 years, Joseph and his brothers had been estranged. They had been at odds, not on speaking terms. And if we look back at one point, it was their envy of Joseph that led to a hatred that wanted him dead. And yet as God awakened their seared and silent conscience, the guilt and shame of their actions weighed heavy on them. They walked around with a burden of guilt and shame. But after 20 years of estrangement and no communication, dealing with the guilt and the shame of what they had done, Joseph's forgiveness opened the door, made possible their reconciliation. They treated Joseph like an enemy, but in verse 15, he treats them like family. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked to him. Because of Joseph's mercy, they were finally at peace. But does that mean that Joseph and his brothers just held hands and skipped off into the sunset? No, they'd still have problems along the way. Joseph had forgiven them really forgiven them. And in terms of their position, they were forgiven. 
They were reconciled. But we see here, and we'll continue to see, that these brothers, positionally, they're forgiven. He declared forgiveness. But, but they struggled to believe that Joseph had actually really fully forgiven them. After Joseph reveals his identity, in verse 3, notice the text says their response. His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. That's a word that means they were terrified. They were panicked. They likely thought, okay, he says he forgives us, but there's no way. He's going to clobber us. Where, where's, the, where's the catch, right? And so seeing their fear and their terror, Joseph lovingly calms their fears and convinces them that he actually forgave them by saying in verse 5, now listen, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Those are remarkable words. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves because you betrayed me, lied to dad, sold me into slavery. Don't be distressed about it. Huh? Listen, but here's the, here's the remarkable thing about what he's saying. He's not belittling their sin. He, he, of anyone, he knows how awful it is what they had done. He's not belittling their sin. He's forgiving their sin. He's saying, I'll pay the cost. It's expensive, and I'll pay it for you. And so they're forgiven. And yet the brothers will struggle to believe that their brother Joseph had actually forgiven them. Not only here in chapter 45, they'll continue to wrestle with believing this forgiveness all the way into chapter 50. Because you'll remember in chapter 50, when Jacob dies, when, when their dad dies, they're like, oh no, now that dad's dead, he's going to clobber us. He's going to come back and he's going to clobber us for all the evil that we had done to them. And so Joseph has to come back to them in chapter 50 and say, no, I'm not going to do that. You meant this for evil, God meant it for good. The brothers struggled to believe that Joseph had really, really forgiven them. And in this instance, if we identify with the brothers, then Joseph is kind of a, a type of Jesus. Because isn't it true for us at times, too, that God can declare that he has forgiven those who have trusted in him, and yet we, like these brothers, struggle to believe that God has actually forgiven us? Sometimes I think that's what motivates me throughout the week. I'm doing these good things in order to earn God's forgiveness, and it's like, why are you doing this? I've already declared you forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says a promise to the people of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read that verse and we say, wow, wow, nah, nah, that's too, too, that's too good to be true. And we struggle to believe that because we live in a world where everything is based not upon God's grace, everything is based upon the world's economy of performance, right? You have to be good enough to make the team. You have to be smart enough to get into the school. You have to be connected enough to get hired by that company. You must be good looking. You must be strong, rich, or gifted to be noticed. Everything in this world is based upon performance. And in the world's economy, if you perform, then you are owed 
good. You owe me. But grace, by definition, is not based upon performance. Grace, by definition, is not earned. Grace, by definition, is an undeserved gift. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. In fact, the only way to receive a gift is to put down what you have. Look at my good works. Put that stuff down. Empty your hands so you can receive the gift. The brothers did not deserve the forgiveness of Joseph. They deserve a lifetime in prison, if not losing their life for what they had done to Joseph. So when we read this section of the Joseph story, we need to remember that we, in this section of the Joseph story, we don't identify with Joseph. We identify with the brothers. You and I, we all have sinned against God. We all fall short of the glory of God. And if you and I get what we deserve, it's not forgiveness. It's hell. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the wages of what you, deserve, the wages of what you get when you work, the wages of sin is death. Friends, don't just gloss over that. Let that sink in for a little bit. Because when you and I stand before God and he holds us accountable for our life and our thoughts and the motivation of our hearts, which he sees perfectly, by the way, and all that is put on the screen before God and he sees all these things and shows all that we've done and said and thought, the standard by which you and I will be judged is not the person sitting next to you. Listen, you can compare yourself to me and feel pretty good about yourself, but I'm not the standard, you're not the standard, the person sitting next to you is not the standard. The standard is the perfection of Jesus Christ. The perfection is the standard of God himself. As a result, no amount of good works that you say, okay, I know I sinned, but from here on out, I'm gonna do good things. No amount of good works will make us right with God because the record of our sin still stands against us. Guilty! And that condemnation is right and just. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, it's at this point in this narrative, I think, that it points us to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember chapter 44, Benjamin is trapped, Judah steps in, and Judah offers himself as a substitute for his brother Benjamin so that Benjamin would be released from prison and go free. Judah offered to take his place. That is a, a faint, faint echo of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus looks at us in our plight. He looks at what we deserve because of our sin. He looks, us, he looks at us imprisoned in our sin. And Jesus says, out of his, and Jesus, out of his love for us, and God, out of his love for us, sends his son, and Jesus, the son of God, 2,000 years ago, takes on flesh, and he becomes a man, fully God and fully man. And Jesus lives the perfect life without sin that we have failed to live. And he does that so that on the cross, he is able to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, that we should have died because of our sin. This is God's love. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And on the cross, Jesus takes the penalty. He takes the punishment of sin for anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ. So again, my non-Christian friend, so glad you're here today. But I want you to ask yourself, what's holding you back this morning from trusting 
Jesus right now? What's holding you back? Because whatever it is, I pray that you let it go. And I pray that you hear the invitation of Jesus to come to him, that you, that you turn from your sin and that you trust in Jesus who offers you forgiveness and a new life. Trust in him. We fast forward from here to Romans 4 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul looks back on Genesis' account of the brother's great-grandfather Abraham. He was counted righteous. Abraham was counted righteous, not because of his good performance. There was times when Abraham looked like a scoundrel too. But God counts Abraham righteous because of his faith, because of his trust in Christ. In Romans 4.24, Paul then explains that that righteousness credited to Abraham by faith will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, our sin, and was raised for our justification, our being declared not guilty. You got it? Now listen to the result of God's gracious forgiveness. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You trust in, you trust in Christ. He takes your sin. He puts his robes of righteousness on you, and then he says, not guilty. And in that moment, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. So, so what does believing look like in this case? What does trusting God's forgiveness look like in this case? Well, simply put, it means not listening to your feelings, not listening to the devil's accusation. And by the way, in Revelation 12, the devil is the great accuser. Look at what he's done. Look at what she's done. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But he overlooks the fact that if you're in Christ, you have an advocate. You have a defense attorney who says, yeah, they're guilty, but I've paid for it all. Don't listen to your feelings. Don't listen to the accusations of the devil. Listen to God's word. If you're in Christ and he says you're forgiven, guess what? You're forgiven. Don't think you know better than God. If he says you're forgiven and you're in Christ, you're forgiven. That's what we sang earlier. If he says you're my child, then we're his child. Even if you don't feel like it. If he says it, it's true. Believe it. Listen to it. Bank on it. Live like it's true. Don't look at the mirror of your performance. Look to Christ who justifies. God's providence frees us to forgive. God's forgiveness leads us to peace. One more step on this pathway of God's grace. Point number three, last point. God's promise resurrects hope. God's promise resurrects hope. This is verses 16 through 28. So let's look together at verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. 
And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt and your, for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave them a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. And pause there. Because when Pharaoh heard about Joseph's family, he was thrilled to help, and, and understandably so. I mean, God is using Joseph for the salvation of countless people in Egypt. So he wants, he's happy to help out Joseph's family. And he instructs Joseph to send back, go back to Canaan, get your dad, get their families, load up your father, load up your families, and, and, and bring them back to Egypt so that I can bless them with the best of all the land in Egypt. So Joseph relays the message from Pharaoh to his brothers. But before he sends them on their way, he says to them, Oh yeah, and when you go, don't quarrel along the way. And I love, how, I love that because I love how practical the Bible is at times. Because in this instance, Joseph sounds like a dad who's, who stops the car before they go on a long interstate drive on a vacation. He says, now listen, let's get ahead of this. Don't quarrel along the way, right? Why would they be tempted to quarrel on their way back to the promised land? Because they were gonna have to come back and tell dad, oh yeah, Joseph's actually alive. I know we took his, row, his coat of many colors and dipped it in blood and made you think that he was dead for 20 years, but sorry. He's actually alive and he's number two in command of all of Egypt. So you can imagine the brothers on the way like trying to pin the blame on Reuben. It was your idea to throw him in the pit in the first place, right? To which he's gonna object, uh-uh, no, 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 don't pin the blame on me. It was Judah's idea of selling him to the Ishmaelites. That's why he's in Egypt. You never liked him anyway. And back and forth, the argument would go, and they would spiral into a quarrel. And so Joseph says, hold on. No. He gets, the argument, he gets ahead of the argument, and he calls for peace. He says, don't quarrel along the way. You're forgiven. So act like it. Joseph's example here illustrates an important truth in the Christian life. Friends, knowing that they were forgiven by Joseph, enabled them to have courage to go home and be honest with their dad about their sin. They're already forgiven. It set them free to be honest about their sin. In the same way, brothers and sisters, knowing that we are forgiven by God, knowing that we are loved by God and accepted by his grace not by our performance. We're not in a competition, church. We are all equal at the foot of the cross, fully loved, fully accepted, and we're all sinners forgiven at the foot of the cross. Knowing that gives us the courage to stop pretending like we're really righteous people in our good works. We can be honest about our sin. We can confess our sin to God and to each other, and we can help each other fight our sin as a church family because we're already justified. God knows the worst thing about you and me, and he's already forgiven it. That should set us free. Kids, the next time you're nervous about telling the truth to your mom or dad, 
The next time you're, you're, in, you're, you're nervous about telling the truth because you, you, you might get caught and you're wondering about the ramifications, remember, if you, kids, if you are trusting in Jesus, then you are forgiven by God. You don't need to blame your brother or sister. You don't need to hide your sin. If God has forgiven you, then you are forgiven. And you can live and talk openly like a forgiven Christian. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, Moses gives us all these details of the goodies that Joseph had sent back with his brothers. And you might be, in, in verses 21 through 23, you might, why, why, does, why, why all these details about the goodies? New clothes, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys, probably provides milk along the way, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision, and, and wagons, wagons. Wagons are mentioned three times in this text, another time in chapter 46. Apparently the wagons are pretty fancy wagons. And Moses is highlighting them and all the riches that he's sending back to Canaan. It's almost like these wagons are rolling up. We're meant to kind of envision these fancy Escalade SUVs, tinted windows, decked out with all these goodies from Egypt. Why? Just send the horse and the the donkey and bring back the people, right? Why all the riches? I think he sends these riches and the wagons and the goods of Egypt that are not necessarily for the trip, but he sends them because he knows that Jacob is going to struggle to believe. He's going to struggle to believe the message that Joseph had sent to dad. For over 20 years, Jacob had operated under believing the lie that his sons had told him about Joseph that Joseph was somehow killed by a wild animal. And so when the brothers arrive they, and, they, and they, they come back to the promised land and they come clean and they say Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over the land, all the land of Egypt, that was true. <laughs> they came clean. But I think that Jacob had been let down so many times before. He's like, uh-uh. No, I can't do it. I've been let down so many times, I'm not about to open my heart another time to have it crushed again, not doing it. So this news is amazing! And he says, "I I don't believe it. Verse 26 says, his heart became numb, unresponsive, unfeeling, for he did not believe them. Despair, hopelessness said, don't believe what they're saying. Just stay put where you're at You've lost a lot. You've had a lot of hurt. Just stay put where you're at and protect what you have left. Don't believe it. That's what despair can do. Despair can turn us into cynics such that good news is too good to be true. But listen, if 
he and his family remain in Canaan with five more years of famine, it's likely that they will not survive. Remember in chapter 37, God gave Joseph his word through a dream saying that one day his family would bow down to him as ruler. The nations would bow down to him as ruler. That was God's word to him and a dream. So Joseph tells his dad, Jacob, about God's word, about God's promise to him in this dream. And you remember in chapter 37 that Jacob hears this dream and he's a little skeptical. He's saying that I'm going to bow down to you one day. But it's interesting. In verse 11 in chapter 37, he says, but he kept the saying in mind. Kind of like Mary in the New Testament put to heart what the angel said to her about the child that would be born to her. He just kind of stores it away and says, okay, that, that might be true. But after 20 years of disappointment after disappointment, heartache after heartache, Jacob's despair, Jacob's hopelessness, Jacob's numb heart made it hard to believe that promise of God in chapter 37. I wonder if you can identify with Jacob. I wonder if life's repeated disappointments have left you this morning beaten and bruised and feeling hopeless, struggling to believe the promises of God. I, I just, I don't want to open up my heart again. I'm, I'm too tired of being disappointed and I, I can't do it. I, I, I'm, and you're struggling to believe like Jacob. Whether it was favoritism or lies or prostitution or betrayal, this family's sin and dysfunction left them in shambles, in such a mess that it seems like God's promise and plan for them was in jeopardy, right? But with Joseph in Egypt and his family about to join him in Egypt, it helps to remember that, this, that them being in Egypt is not some random thing. You remember in chapter 15, God promised Jacob's grandfather Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 13 that they would end up in Egypt for 400 years. Guess where they're at? In Egypt. God promised to bring this family to Egypt, and here they are. This is not an accident. This is not fate. This is not a chance by chance. This is God's plan. This is God's providence. So think of Genesis first readers. Moses is writing this, the Israelites Wandering in the wilderness. Why are they wandering in the wilderness? Because they doubted God. They had sinful doubt. Or, or think, about, think about the later Israelites who are in exile, who will be reading Genesis. And they're in exile in, in Assyria or Babylon because of their sinful idolatry. They're reading this Genesis account. What does this have to say to them? They're looking at their mess they're in, in exile or wandering around the wilderness, and they're, they're saying, well, we're here because of our sin. We know it. And they're wondering if... God was done with them. If their sin had somehow derailed God's plan for them, then like Jacob, they, they're wondering if there was any hope for their future. Again, for over 20 years, Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. And with him, his hope began to die. But what's beautiful is that after hearing Joseph's word, 
based upon the promise of God in Genesis 37. And seeing the wagons, verse 27 tells us the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Literally, it says he lived. His spirit lived. It's like his spirit was dead with hopelessness, and all of a sudden his spirit was revived, resurrected, lives. Jacob's hope was resurrected. And instead of just sitting in Canaan, trying to protect what's left, verse 28 ends with him saying, okay, I will go. What gives him the courage? It's his faith. I will go and see him before I die. So what does belief look like for Jacob? Not just saying I believe. Belief looks like getting up and going. Living as if what God had said is true because it is true. That's what belief looks like here. God graciously used the wagons that Joseph sent to resurrect Jacob's hope in God's promise. Isn't that cool? But what about us? We struggle to believe God's promises sometimes. What does God give to help us when we're struggling to believe his promises? Well, first and foremost, Christians, he gives us his spirit. He gives us his spirit, and his spirit writes his law, not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. His spirit takes a dead, cold heart and gives you a heart of flesh and says, believe, and guess what? You believe. So he gives us his spirit. But he also gives us the resurrection. Listen, this is cool. Jacob thought that Joseph was dead for 20 years, only to find out he was actually alive and ruler of Egypt. Jesus actually did die. But on the third day, he rose again. And he he didn't just rise as king of Egypt, he rose as king of kings and lord of lords over all creation. And that's where he sits today, victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death itself. And so for this reason, we step out of our despair and hopelessness, out of our cynicism into hope. We don't just simply acknowledge that this is true. We get up and we go. We live in obedience to the word of God with the help of his spirit in light of Jesus' resurrection and knowing that he sits on the throne of king, as king of kings and lord of lords because no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we hear on the news tomorrow, no matter what happens in the next election, no matter what happens at work or in the doctor's office, we obey Christ as king and live in the confidence that Christ is king. We live in hope that because Christ is on the throne, he is taking everything that happens in your life, good and bad, and he is weaving all things together into something beautiful, something for your good. Because he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his good and perfect will. Father, we confess we often struggle to believe this and live in light of this. We hold on to bitterness and resentment. We we fail to believe that you've actually forgiven us. We live in the guilt and shame that 
that says that, you have, that we have to perform. We struggle to believe your promises and believe what years of discouragement say to us. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to believe what you say in your word about yourself, what you say about us, and what you say about this world. Help us to live together as the people of God in light of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.